This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 111. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 111 you're listening to. It's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio and Audio Technica, 111, back with another week of the Working Class Audio Podcast for you. How about that? We've got a great guest for you today. We have on Nathan Harlow, who is someone from my past, late 80s, early 90s, San Francisco music era past on today. Nathan was in the band uh, Maximilian's Motorcycle Club when I was a wee lad long ago, and he also was a wee lad. Anyhow, we were both playing in the same, you know, Bay Area music scene. Um, Nathan, however, went on to work in live sound, and he has been an audio engineer for the last 20 years or so, doing touring, mixing, doing some recording, but also uh, doing system design. And he's worked with some of the major venues here in the area, the uh, the Fox Theater in Oakland, California, the Warfield, San Francisco, and the Fillmore uh, in San Francisco. And he's worked for uh, for the sound company Ultrasound, going back to 1993. He's worked with some amazing artists, um, an artist named Zhu, Z-H-U, and some of these you're going to know, some of these you might not know. Sonic Youth, of course, Deltron 3030, Babel Gilberto, I can't say that too fast, can I? Brazilian Girls, Lucinda Williams, Rob Zombie, Medeski, Martin and Wood, Primus, the one at the top of the heap of them all, Prince, which was, uh, as you'll hear in the interview, was a major goal for Nathan to work for. So fantastic guy, very thoughtful individual. Really glad to have Nathan on the show today. So yeah, Nathan Harlow coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. And I hope you enjoyed the uh, the last show, the NAM episode, number 110, uh, kind of a, a power talk type of episode, power chat type of episode for uh, Winter NAM 2017. And, uh, you know, great show. Love walking around NAM. I definitely... Uh, walked a few miles, I think, over the course of the four days. Of course, I didn't see everything. You know, you just, I don't know about you, but I don't stop at every single booth. So uh, I'm over here at the Gear Sluts at the uh, Winter Nam 2017 forum, just kind of scanning to see what I potentially missed. Uh, of course, uh, our friends over at uh, Universal Audio introduced the new Apollo Twin Mark II desktop, which is now a quad-core twin, which is cool. Now I'm feeling like I have to upgrade my twin, of course. What else did, did I not see? Um, I, I see Lynx has some new converters. I thought that was pretty cool. I, I just walked by the booth, saw the converters, and thought, ooh, that looks nice. I'll have to read more on that. Uh, anyways, if you are looking for, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, a refresher or you want to know what happened at NAM as far as uh, gear is concerned and what new things have been uh, revealed uh, from all the manufacturers who were there, head on over to gearsluts.com and check that out. Oh, yeah. Our friend uh, Colin McDowell from McDSP. Colin and I went to high school together, believe it or not, uh, and I posted a picture of that, I think, on Facebook of the two of us. Uh, they have a new uh, plug-in, uh, EC300, that's coming out, so look forward to trying that out. And, uh, yeah, so that's the, that's the, the NAM part of things, just kind of still recovering from that because, you know, that's a lot of walking and, uh, not really a big drinker. So I didn't really drink, uh, all that much. Uh, so 
that's a good thing. That helped me get through the, the four days by not doing that, drinking lots of water instead and eating at the the times that my body said, it's time to eat. So yeah, NAM 2017, forum up on gearslets.com. Check that out. And uh, let's let's talk about the studio tours. Uh, a few of you have sent me some studio tours, which is super cool. And I have now a group of them that I got to get up. So this week we'll uh, devote to, well, not the entire part of the week, but going to carve out a section of the week to devote to putting up some of those studio tours. So um, like I said, if you want, uh, create a look at the studio tours that are on the Working Class Audio website to see what those look like, get a sense of what people are doing, and then grab your smartphone and give us a, a brief tour of your studio. Of course, you know, tell us who you are, where your studio is, and, um, you know, any particular information that you want to share about your studio. And we'll put that up on the Working Class Audio site along with everybody else's studio tours and just makes for a great opportunity to give people a glimpse into your world. If you like showing off your studio, this is a great way to do it. That's it. I think it's time to chat with our friend Nathan, so let's do that. Nathan Harlow here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, as you've heard me say a few times. Awesome. Thank you for being a listener. Thank you for having me. I had so, plotted having you because I was like, Nathan's working over at the Fillmore doing front of house. I should chat with him. Well, it's kind of a Charlie Rose moment, right? <laughs> <laughs> if Matt Boudreaux's calling you, it means you've been holding something down for a while. <laughs> you don't make me spit coffee on my nose. Thank you, Audio Technica, for letting me spit coffee on the mics. Yeah, thanks for... Uh, for having me over, um, um, we're over at Nathan's uh, studio space, which is a um, a complex of sorts in San Francisco on Harrison Street. For those in the know, or those who don't know, it's one of these typical San Francisco buildings. Well, like any building in a big city, there's mystery behind the door, and you open the door, and, and each door leads to a new uh, moment of oh my god, that's so cool. And this place is definitely no exception. It's it's cool and all directions. Thanks for coming over. Uh, a lot of it is the creation of my partner, Monty Vallier, and our legacy partner, Jamie Kahn. But um, I can take a little bit of credit for uh, the hard work and elbow grease and lofty ideas. <laughs> it's a, a long arc to get where we are now. So let's, let's do a little digging of the past to catch ourselves up as well as the audience. Um, and you tell me if this is your recollection. My recollection is is we know each other because I was in the band The Sextants and you were in the band Maximilian's Motorcycle Club. Mm. Goes back to like early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. Late 80s, yeah. And uh, you played bass in Maximilian's with Brian Weisberg. Brian, yeah. Who at the time of coming up as a, as a young man in the city, the first time I saw you guys play, I was so... Well, first of all, I loved musically what you guys were doing. I just loved how it looked. I loved how it sounded. But Brian, before I knew him, looked very intimidating. Now, if you see him on Facebook as a dad, not so intimidating. Well, we're not our extremes, right? That's true. <laughs> you used to have long hair, as did I. Now, here we are with short hair. And that was how I met you initially. What is your recollection? Is that, uh, is that uh, right? meeting you? Yeah, uh, there was that, and Brian needed me to pay some studio rent, so he got me a job pushing cases at the Fillmore, and I met the rest of the Sextants and um, Max Butler and Brennan Hester. That's right, and our good friend Cam. Mm, 
uh, uh, rest in peace to our friend Cam, who absolutely passed away. Um, uh, God, is it a year, two mm, years? More, yeah. Yeah, more like two and a half. But anyway, uh, so I met a lot of uh, legends of the industry. Legends <laughs> of the industry. Paul Majeski and uh, oh, Paul Majewski. a lot of people gave me a lot of real good breaks early on that, you know, allowed me to stay in the room for a while to learn stuff. I had grown up in San Francisco and yeah. uh, met uh, Brian through being in bands. And then those bands turned into other bands. And as those things became more sonically important, I started doing that part of the band's assignments, right? Some people have to book the shows and other people have to talk to the local sound guy or whatever it is, you know, work on the production, do the recording kind of thing. Yeah. That was my interest. And hopefully I gained some knowledge out of that that allowed me to understand and empathize more with performers on stage as I became a better sound engineer. That's, I forgot the whole Fillmore part of it. Yeah. Like that early that Fillmore part of, of memory. <laughs> right. I think I pushed that out of my head. Um, <laughs> So yeah, long story short for the audience, yes. we both used to work at the Fillmore loading gear. I washed dishes as well. Mm -hmm. That that wasn't fun. Anything to get your foot in. We were 19, man. Yeah, and I <laughs> and I think, you know, making 5, 6 dollars an hour, something kind of nutty. 5 bucks in a t-shirt. That was what we And a say. poster. Yeah, well, which some, we used, for we, some. Yeah, for some. <laughs> we used to take our posters at the end of the show and go sell them in North Beach to pay our rent because those Fillmore posters were worth something and there was a guy worth, you know, willing to buy them. Yeah, interesting. It goes, a lot of time has passed since then, really. Yeah, for sure. So tell me about post-band, uh, po well, post-Maximilian's Motorcycle Club and post $5 an hour at the Fillmore uh, days. Where have you been? Maximilian's turned into a metal band called Release. That broke up around 94, 95 after having some general success, but... I was wanting to get out on the road. I realized one person could do it quicker and easier than four people, that I probably couldn't play bass in all the bands that I would want to do sound with. As it broke up, I set my intention to do some things that seemed outlandish, you know, like I wanted to mix monitors for prints. And so I said, I'm going to do that. I realized it was a revolving door. And I said, around 95, I'm going to be there by 99. And so in a very zigzag kind of way that made things appear connected <laughs> that seemed very dissimilar. I set my intention to do that and I did that. And so after a few years with Primus and other local bands doing lots of other things, you know, but a few years touring with Ultrasound, learning craft from Dr. Don Pearson, learning craft from uh, Matt Hash and some other kind of heavies around the Grateful Dead and the offshoots of that and just learning more about sound system implementation. I was able to do a few tours with Ultrasound and then with Primus that led into a trip with Rob Zombie that led into the Prince gig in a very abstract kind of way. Do in front of house or monitors? Monitors. monitors. This wow. was all monitors because I knew that that was a way in. There was a saying back in the 90s, friends don't let friends do monitors. So I took that to heart. <laughs> and whether it was true, I had no friends, but I definitely did monitors. <laughs> and so um, 
I was also every being with the musician background or fake, you know, not fake, but half musician background, aspiring musician background. You know, I was able to have empathy. It was I, the first time you played a stage and it sounded great. Wasn't that amazing? Yeah, I will say one of the early experiences when I was in the band, The Sextants, was at Slim's. And you felt taken care of because they had smart people at Slim's. And just the idea of being lifted by the audio, being able to perform as if things are easy. You don't have to worry about it anymore. You know, you can just take the emotionality out of it and just, or the technical part of the emotionality out of it and just convey your message. You know, it's a clear kind of way. Anyway, so I realized a lot of people had trouble hearing themselves. And I was like, I like helping people hear themselves you know so i figured i'd be able to do it really well and one night after uh being at the fillmore some guy said you know wow you could work for anybody in the country and i went home i kind of took that to heart i was like wait a minute if that's true who's that gonna be right so i had to answer a few questions like okay is it the one you respect the most the make make the most money the other musicians and artists respect the most, sound engineers, you know, so that would always one person and that was Prince, you know, I grew up listening to him and he's the baddest musician on the planet and he's still here as long as we understand that, right? <laughs> and so wow. I was like, he's now my Kung Fu master. I'm going to understand life through what it takes to be his monitor engineer. And it kind of came off as a joke, like I'm going to go see what words Prince uses to fire me because, you know, he fires people two at a time, right? Like <laughs> one for the show, Oh, one for sound check, one for the show, right? And so wow. I'll see, I'll just go surf that wave, see if I fall, you know? And through, you know, a very interesting way of looking at things, I saw my path through seemingly unrelated circumstances. I have to improve my game so that I might be able to stay in that room. And what is going to help me improve my game? Probably the thing that scares me the most, right? So I have to go do the things that scare me the most. And I got, after doing a trip with uh, Primus, the opening act, Power Man 5000, had a front of house engineer that was really Rob Zombie's front of house engineer, but he was just doing this because that was his brother, right, you know? And so he remembered me from then, and when Rob Zombie came through town and they were firing their monitor engineer or he was moving on to Britney Spears, they gave me a cold call like 11.30 a.m., and <laughs> I'm a live sound guy. I don't go to bed till 2 or 3, right? And I'm just like, uh, what? And I'm like, oh, hey, Ted, what's going on? And he's like, well, we need a guy. And I'm like, you know, my heart starts going, right? He's like, you know, come jump on the tour bus tonight. And at a certain moment, I'm just pausing, thinking about it. And he's like, well, it's kind of shit or get off the pot. And I was like, well, if I'm going to get a call from Prince, like I've been wanting to, it's going to come like this. Like, it's not going to come like with a ramp, a slow ramp up to just like make it cushy. It's going to come, you got to have your samurai skills ready, right? So it was like, okay, I'm going to go down and check this out. And the moment I went there, like an hour after being shown around, I met Takumi, Prince's guitar tech, random. He happens to work with Zombie from years ago. He happens to be Bay Area metal scene from years ago, like myself, right? Like wow. we have, and so had I not just like shat or got off the pot, I would have missed my little window of opportunity to surf that wave that I ended up being able to surf and still talk about today. You know, like it's, it's an amazing story of setting your intention. You can do what you think you can as long as you think you can, right? And 
it was fun. You learn a lot. And being with Prince, you learn even more, <laughs> right? You know, you learn a lot getting there. So the moral of the story, <laughs> even at this early stage of our interview, is when it comes to shitting or getting off the pot, sometimes it's best to shit. <laughs> yeah, I wish it didn't come out that way because that's a little profane for Prince. He wouldn't like that. But I guess I could have come <laughs> up with a better metaphor. But um, no, it's go into your fear. That's what it is. Okay. It walk into your fear. If it's making you nervous, it's because you got something to learn there. And if you don't want to learn anything, that's cool. You don't need to, you know, or maybe there's a different way to learn it. Maybe that's not the way for you. However, there is a thing on the other side. And if you would like to understand what that is, there's a point to it. So you get on this tour with Rob Zombie. Uh, yeah, we'll go to Rob Zombie. And that's like being a part of KISS, right? Like, you know, there's pyro and cues. And I mean, that was an intense thing. That was like, that was actually really fun. From a person like myself who really is a studio guy, the world of live sound, whether it be monitors or front of house, what's the interaction like with the main talent? Like, is there interaction or is it just you show up to your desk and move your faders and that's it? Wow, it really depends. I mean, it depends on the artist. It depends on who you are as a person and who they are and what they're willing to, you know, how they how they run their camp, you know? Like if we're on the Rob Zombie thing, I saw him in a laundromat with his girlfriend once and we both barely said, what's up? You know, like <laughs> that's how personal it was, you know? But later when he came to the Palladium and he saw me behind Prince's console, he gave me a big smile and handshake, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it all goes wherever. <laughs> I've also partied with whatever artist. I've also been ignored by whatever artist. There's, you know, the day that Prince walked by and said, what's up? You know, I was elated. I was like, okay, I'm inside. I'm calm on the outside, but I'm inside going, all right, I made it through this day. <laughs> I made it through this tour. You know, that's a good feeling. And if he's talking to you, it's because there's a reason, right? And that was a good reason. Let me ask you, going back to the that moment of the phone call to get into Rob Zombie's situation, you could say yes. It's easy to say yes. How do you protect yourself from wasting your time financially because maybe they're like let's just grab somebody who's willing to do it for cheap right and how do you draw that line of respect of yourself for your own skills and what you think your value is and you know balance that with well this is an opportunity to go with rob you know what do you do in those moments and how do you do you just show up like a couple days later talk to the tour manager and go so how much am i making no, you got to, you got to, like in that case, I was in it for the experience and the thing that would get me the furth <clears throat> furthest in my career. So money was kind of like not secondary, but it was not on my forefront. However, that said, in the back of my mind, I know what I'm worth and I know what I will say no to. And I also know that I got them. They called me. I was in bed, <laughs> right? Like in that situation, you know, like I could take that or not, you know, at that moment, they're looking at me. So I get to say what I am worth. And if they flinch, then I say it's per hour or whatever, you know, like <laughs> that's the art of negotiation. A long time ago, I wrote down what I thought I would be worth. I included, you know, like it was almost like a cover letter of almost like a writer of list of demands that you never send, you know? So I'm X a week, I'm X a day, I'm, you know, king size hotels, I'm this or that, this is my quality of life. And if I deviate from that, it's for a reason. If I don't make that kind of money or that kind of uh, accommodations, it's because I want to experience something. They're going someplace I want to be, whether that's financially or artistically or internationally or, 
experience or spiritually, that's where I want to be. I got to give something up, but I know what my baseline is. So I have something to calibrate. It's good to write that down too, because sometimes in the heat of the moment, we don't, if we haven't thought those things through, we may undervalue ourselves, or we may overvalue ourselves and lose a gig. Undervalue or overvalue the gig that's being presented to us more like, right? Like you could go, oh, wow. Like say you're really into Rob Zombie, which I was a bit, you know, a little enamored by it. I wouldn't go out with anybody I wasn't, but I wasn't, you know, however, you know, you could almost say like, wow, they're calling me. Oh my gosh. It's a star moment, right? Like, you know, like I'll do it for whatever. And it's like, no, no, you got to set your intention. You know, writing stuff down is a great way of setting your intention, you know, like just like you do stage plots and writers for bands. And if you're a tour manager, you've done this, you know, do it for yourself, you know, make the, you know, set the story you want to tell. I love that. That's great. That's great (laughs) advice. So you go through the Rob Zombie experience. And that was ups and downs. That was pretty good. I was also working for Primus at the same time. So I was getting trained and doing like, you know, brutal all day work. Uh, we did the OzFest, which was amazing to see Bill Ward behind the Black Sabbath drum kit to stand like where we are right now with five feet away from his <laughs> riser while he's wow. playing at Soundcheck and just go, oh, wow, he is the band. So like whatever Tony and Tom and Geezer are doing, like <laughs> it's him. It's the, you know, it's all on the wrist. And so, I mean, those kinds of experience are amazing. But, you know, that was a 7 a.m. until 2 a.m. kind of workday, which is, again, what I was training for with, you know, to work with Prince, where that's a 24-hour gig, you know, so the times that I'm there for that. I, I got to ask, you're, you're on tour with Rob Zombie and doing some Primus stuff. Are you, I mean, you are literally like preparing yourself for your ultimate goal. I'm in the bunk listening to uh, bootlegs. I'm, you know, got my purple flashlight and, you know, like all this stuff. Like, you know, it might sound crazy now, but it also gets you on on a frequency, on a wavelength. And if that's what we're doing, if we're talking about sound and if we're looking at reality in the terms of sound and waves, then we're surfing, you know, then we're riding energy. You know, everything's an impulse and it all comes from that, right? So... If you can get in line with what he's saying, move yourself and your expectations out of the way, it's never going to come the way you think it is. Be open for how it is coming. Be able to respond, not react. That's monitors, right? Like, that's like not taking stuff personally. Like, something I learned with Rob Zombie when he's with the blood and like the UV makeup and, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, and there's like strobes and pyro going off and he's like, pounding his chest with his microphone and going more me you know and like the monitor guy can freeze at that moment and just like going oh get lost in the moment or something but if you're taking it as a like wow that's awesome (laughs) i can't believe you had that effect on me (laughs) like i'll turn you up for sure (laughs) like (laughs) well done sir everything well played (laughs) everything becomes you know a dance you're just dancing with them so was prince next yeah out of that like well you know there was lots of little baby bands in there that i love to give plugs to but as far as the larger things yeah that kind of came like i since i had met takumi then and was able to remain in contact with him i kept you know not the days of email now but i used to give him you know hey how's it going calls like you need a guys yet you know i know he fires guys you know like <laughs> and he was with it he was like uh for the uh the grace of whomever uh takumi was definitely on my side and got me in that room he's an amazing cat takumi i i'm appreciative of all of that stuff it was a hard thing 
but it was definitely like getting beat up by the kung fu master you know you learn to fight but you're black and blue you know you're <laughs> how so how did the 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 gig ultimately come just by being in contact with him, he the first gig I did with him was in the uh, a record release for Raven to the Joy Fantastic. It was basically a show for Clive Davis in the ballroom of the Fountain Blue Hilton in Miami. And so I got a call from Takumi. It's like, all right, he needs a guy. And then like within that same day, I'm at the Fillmore working, right? This lady comes around like from the other side of the room, not from where the exit is, but from the other side of the room. I don't know how she got in there, but she taps me on the shoulder. She's got the little medallion, the love symbol, right? And she's handing me my paperwork. My flights, it came like so surreal. <laughs> Wait, okay, they're in Miami. Oh, but they're preparing to go. They're going to go. Like, this is a few weeks out, you know, or a week or so out. And I get a call like, okay, he's ready for a monitor engineer. Takumi says, come on down. You know, that's the call I get from Takumi. So I'm prepared to get some sort of notice somehow, right? I'm not sure when or where. And this is no longer emails, right? So... One day I'm at the Fillmore. He knows I work at the Fillmore. He told that, you know, however it happened, I, it's not even for fun and, to and look the at. Agent of Prince shows up. No, no, this is just a woman, a runner, right, with the love symbol, right? You know, and she's, you know, she's a friend of Takumi's, but somebody who's able to get paperwork to me. Eventually, that's what I find out. But in my mind, I'm doing my job, all like tunnel vision, head down. Somebody taps me on the shoulder. I see the little glow of gold, and it's some paperwork, and it's just like that, you know. Song remains the same, <laughs> you know. Oh, to a date. <laughs> oh, these are tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. John Paul Jones, you ever see that movie? <laughs> it's like, it was perfect. Like, you can't even write it, right? Like, I can't make that up. I can, but I can perceive it in that way, you know? So I take that flight, I get in that limo, I get into the, wherever they're staying at that, uh, like, that golf course there and the, you know the richest thing there whatever in that huge hotel and i'm sitting there the night before the gig with my heart just like what, what, know, this is what i imagined what can i do to prepare yeah well which is the thing is you don't prepare right like what <laughs> you just be right that's the only thing you can do is like the only way to prepare is to not over prepare just have enough you know access to your tools and your craft be willing and so I wish I had had more tools. I wish I had more craft at that moment. I wish I had done, you know, a lot more homework, even as much as I did. Because at that sound check, I started listening to the text and understanding it from their perspective rather than introducing myself from my own perspective. They had me turning up the samples really loud They because they were going by show volume of individual instruments. So by the time everything got together, it's just taking your head off, right? And so I don't know. I'm like, really? This loud? This loud? This loud? <laughs> I mean, like, I'm believing them, which I shouldn't have, right? You know, I was vulnerable and I went with what I thought, you know, and anyway. Anyway, and so I'm trying to get the vocal over that as a monitor engineer. That's challenging. And so Prince walks in the very first time I meet Prince and he says, play the sample, you know, and he's on the other side of the stage. And so they play the sample and he's like, wham, off the side fill is taking his head off. So he's all he's already afraid of me. Right. Like <laughs> first note, he's afraid of me. So now I'm coming from the behind. Right. Like, I, I, like uh oh, <laughs> you know, and so I got to like really scramble on this one. They stop it immediately and he's all turn the samples down. You know, like that's how that's how he responds. <laughs> you know, like it's <laughs> if you didn't understand it already. <laughs> if you're not getting it here, kid. Wow. <laughs> turn those samples down. And so we try again. And of course, I did that stupid monitor guy thing of, oh, I'll just turn it down a little bit, right? You know, it's like, no, 
big, bold moves, turn it down, turn it down, right? And so I just did the split the difference thing. So that's second time, right? Uh-oh, <laughs> you know, third strike, I'm out. That's how I'm feeling, right? And so I get the finger, come on out here, right in the middle of the stage. He grabs me by the arm. I'm like, whoa, I, I had hope for a hug from Prince when I first met him, but I didn't think it'd be like this. <laughs> but, so he's like, play the samples. <laughs> it's like, bam, he's like, you see? <laughs> and right then, right there, I understood everything about what he's talking about. Everything. You're on the stage, you're only feeling it. It's back to square one. Everything about him is 101, audio 101, sound reinforcement handbook. If you read that thing, you know the first two words is sound reinforcement. Reinforcement, not enforcement, right? Everything's coming from behind. At that moment, you're out there on the stage. You're never louder than the drum kit, right? You don't put the hi-hat in the left side, Phil. You put it in the right one, just the same volume as the natural hi-hat, right? So you get stereo image off of what's happening. The musicians control the dynamic, you know? And that way they can talk. The clearer they can talk, the more that they're able to have dynamic, the less you have to do. Really, you're just making a clean canvas for them to do their art. How long did you last in that situation, I must ask? Two and a half years. Wow. On monitors? Yeah, on monitors uh, for him. Uh, often on tours, he was canceling stuff. He was fly me out or fly everybody out, not me specifically, but and then we'd all cancel or we'd just do a week and a half at Paisley or, you know, things, you know, changed around. I was doing a lot of things. I was going through a lot personally, you know. I ended up leaving I never got fired, technically. He canceled a tour, and I got another gig that I was interested in. It was going international, and I eventually turned that into a front of house gig and a whole other experience that could be episode two. <laughs> That's impressive, man. Two and a half years mm, on yeah. monitors. Yeah, yeah. That says something. It was fun. And a lot of people, you know, like, it's impressive, but it's like if you give yourself up to what is the truth at that moment, it's really easy, you know? It's really easy if you can respond. He's giving you the greatest compliment by asking the best of you. Some people take insult in that, right? Oh, man, he's really pushing us. He's like, no, he's really offering you. He's really offering you the opportunity to do your best, to be out there with those guys that are doing their best, right? And like together, all of us doing our best down to the truck driver, you know, like we're blowing the roof off the place with 30,000 people seeing God, right? Like having a ecstatic moment, you know, because that's what it's like when music is great and the artist is connecting and nobody's worried about feedback and nobody's worried about sound that, you know, which is the thing you never notice it until it's wrong. <laughs> you have to have some pride, you know, you have to have like some grace and eloquence to be able to get out of the way that has probably informed so much of what you have done since oh yeah like i said i mean we're still talking about it and you're still amazed right like it's better than a resume right like it's akin to punching the biggest guy in the yard if you're in, <laughs> if you're in prison or something or just hooping on the <laughs> on the big guy at the <laughs> at the basketball tournament or whatever it's like oh oh okay you know i thought you was just but oh but he oh okay you know like you can make a lot of assumptions about people, but it is back to music. It's like, what do you sound wow. like? <laughs> what an experience. Nathan Arlo here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hope you're enjoying that. But we're going to take a sponsor break for a sec with Audio-Technica because I want to tell you a story. Uh, it's not that really of an intense story. But uh, anyways, I have these headphones 
not the headphones I use on the show and for uh, general audio work. I'm talking about these in-ear headphones that I got from Audio-Technica, and I paid for them. No, they didn't give them to me for free. I bought them. ATHE40s is what I'm talking about. I'm holding them here in my hand. In-ear headphones. Never thought I would buy a pair of in-ear headphones. But truth be told, I had this uh, drumming gig that I was doing, live karaoke thing. Yeah, it's it's pretty nutty. Or it was pretty nutty because I'm not doing that gig anymore. Anyhow, I bought it for that to use with a click track and which, you know, side story, that never occurred. So here I was sitting here with these headphones and I thought, well, obviously I'm not going to return them because I can't uh, because I've already, you know, kind of taken them out of the box, tried them on, put them in my ears and really great headphones as it turns out. $99. And I've been using them on airplanes because let me tell you, they, they may not be noise-canceling headphones, but they can sure as hell cut out a lot of extraneous noise on an airplane. I listen to my Pono player through them when I'm on the airplane. Uh, when I'm watching Netflix or Amazon or one of those, watching streaming stuff, movies and such, uh, those are really great. And also, if this here's a picture for you. Me walking around the house with either my phone or my Pono player plugged in listening to music, cleaning the house. How about that? There's a there's an image for you. Uh, anyways, 99 bucks. You can check them out at audio-technica.com. I'm not going to pretend to tell you that I know all the fine details about them because to be honest with you, I don't. I just know how they sound and I know that they work for me and it's really up to you to kind of figure out if that's something that uh, you need in your life. They do come in a nice little box, a uh, little kind of a uh, flexible box so the headphones can stay protected and it does come with a, uh, a quarter inch connector because uh, there's a there's an eighth inch connector on there but you can put a quarter inch connector on there and you can listen to you know your pro audio gear with it but uh yeah i've been really enjoying them and for a hundred bucks i thought you know kind of hard to go wrong there anyhow uh check them out the uh audio technica e40s and uh, also the um just one thing see the little you can't see it but uh the headphone detaches on e each side. So if uh, something happens or you want to take them, take them off from the connector and uh, replace them or clean them or do whatever you're going to do to them, it disconnects. It's really quite cool. All right, well, that's it. Let's get back to our interview here with our friend Nathan Harlow here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. You said you, you left because mm. you had another gig that you wanted to do that was more international. Leaving Prince was... Um... You know, there's so many stories in there, but we had had this kind of very difficult um, weekend of shows uh, after a long rehearsal for a tour. For political reasons, it ended up being quite a difficult uh, load-in with a local sound company. Uh, I felt very funneled as if everything bad was going through the monitor engineer, which is somewhat the case in a lot of ways where you're facing you're fronting the technical ability and grace of the stage you know so ideally everything's flowing well because you're the only one <laughs> with contact to front of house or you know you become the center of attention whether it's your gig or not right and so i was responding in a way that i didn't like and i got a call from a friend of mine for uh to work with a Brazilian artist named Babel Gilberto. She's the daughter of a very famous Joao Gilberto. Um, I fell in love with Brazilian music a very long time ago. And so he's like, if I'm working for the people I love, you know, if that's my angle, like, you know, he's the next, like, and he's even way more critical than Prince, you know, like he's on some other level. And so 
I had a little bit of an ego vibe on it too of like, oh man, all right. Like, oh, he's next. I get to work with Joao, you know, like, <laughs> and so in some ways that was a little bit of a note in that chord, but really they were being offered to go to Japan. And then I knew she would go to Europe and uh, hopefully Brazil after that. You know, I really wanted to tour internationally. I'd already done amphitheaters in the States. It was kind of a grind, um, not to denigrate the United States, but it all looks the same. And I'm out, you know, like I, at that point in my life, I need out, you know, I need to experience flavor. If I'm going to sweat bloods, <laughs> you know, bleed and sweat for this gig, I want to feel something, right? And she had an opportunity to go international. I knew Prince would never take their local sound crew international just to fire them and send them back on a plane, right? So it was a little bit of a chess move, right? He had just canceled the tour. She was just starting up. We were going to go to Japan. However, our fly dates were 9-11, 2001. So <laughs> things got canceled, things got put on hold, um, but eventually we started back up in 2002 in February. And that was a very long trip with her, uh, eight years while doing other things, but growing with her, doing monitors at first, and then everything towards the end. Can we talk a little bit about life on the road and that's a, I mean, that's a whole other world. So I'm, here's a couple of key points that I'm curious about. Just um, staying healthy, staying sane, staying uh, financially. How does that work in terms of saving money? Tell me about how you have come to shape your world on the road to, to make it what you want it to be um, off stage. It's a challenging question because after that experience with Babel, I stopped touring for a very long time because of some of those issues, you know, to where I was more concerned about another person's career than I was my own, right? I was doing more for their comfort than I was my own. I was operating from a stance of, you know, I need to work harder to deserve to be in this room, right? I, I was giving up myself. I was kind of boundaryless, you know, so tour can ask everything of you if you allow it, right? Mm -hmm. it, no matter what the budget is, whether it's your own personal energy or your time. The times that I was touring and was able to give it up to tours to where I wasn't concentrated, what was happening on my back, you know, at home, whether it's, you know, the first part of it, I was with roommates, you know, and like I was 20 and 28 and, you know, and able to live for very cheap. And it was like a fishing expedition. You go out for six months, you don't have to work for three, you know, and like, you have a little bit of this, you know, illusion of independence that way. And it's kind of outlaw and you can kind of, you know, hang out in that kind of gray area for a little while, but it's a trap, you know, you end up, if that's all, you know, then that's all, you know, I figured I needed something at home. I enjoyed the road as long as I did. I enjoyed working for artists, you know, so sound company, nightclub, artist, work for yourself, you know, your own art so that you have something to live for <laughs> yeah work for your life you know so those five things if you're doing all of those i think that the other stuff happens you know whether it's the quality of art that you're dealing with or the amount of money that you might receive in return i have a little bit of a what's going to happen is going to happen vibe about it um not a lot of strategy in the beginning but as i grow older i realized i was happy that i saved a lot as i could while I was making that money, if I'm not living expensively, you know, then that stuff needs to go somewhere. Obviously, there's a little too much gear around here, <laughs> and that a lot of it's detritus that will never get resold. But right, <laughs> um, there's you know, 
many strategies, you know, dollar cost averaging. What is that? You know, every six months, put something in the bank, you know, no matter, and then shrink that to three months and then shrink that to a month and, you know, get a month ahead, get two months ahead, get a year ahead, get three years ahead. And so that your cushion doesn't have to be affected by what your choices are, right? So that you can take that last minute gig because you just want to. Oh, they're going to Japan. I want to do that, right? It's like, oh, we're going to Japan. How much are you going to pay me? It's You can evaluate things a little bit differently. You know, not having kids is a decision I made that yeah. a while ago, you know, for me, it's the right thing because my insanity from being on the road would be then carried down, right? <laughs> so, And I think that that, I, I have to respect that because having kids definitely is not for everybody. And I think it's very, um, speaks volume about you as a person to make that decision knowing that you don't want to transfer that insanity to kids because it can be insane. And I would love to paint the picture of I've done it right or, you know, whatever, but it's a lot of tacking, you know, yeah. you're one side of the pendulum for a while, the other side for a little while. And not to, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to say if you have kids and you go on the road, you're some kind of bad person now. Oh no. But it, but it, but it's good to just kind of know it's, it goes back once again, what, what st is sticking in my head still is you writing down the, mm. the writer, the personal writer. I think it's that it's knowing a lot about yourself. Yeah. Or knowing what you expect for yourself helps you make better decisions. I guess if I'm dealing with the lowest overhead possible, I'm able to respond the quickest. However, that is in, a, in and of itself a defense mechanism for having lasting roots somewhere, mm -hmm. right? And so to have lasting roots, you need to be able to balance a lot of your own personal integrity and then the needs of others, right? And me not having kids or not being able to show up in relationships has been from an air of trying to do what I personally think is right. And that could be, I need to move quickly and not in regard to other, to another story, just my own. Right. Mm -hmm. And it can hurt and it can hurt to be that person. You know, it can, hurt to have to make those decisions, you know, because in the long run, it's a limitation. It's a limitation to your greater experience, you know, of being connected with a family, being connected with another part of yourself that isn't just concerned about efficiency and doing the right thing for a band. Although all of those things are very important, your identity can come from other places. And I feel in some ways I ran the risk of losing my identity in the bands that I was working for, especially if you're working for somebody as popular as Prince and as amazing as we discussed him, discussed him as, you know, um, you go, oh yeah, I'm his guy. But as soon as that tour is over, you're not his guy anymore. You got yourself to reckon with, you know, and so becoming a better person is the best economic decision you can make. Becoming <laughs> a better person who is walking their craft and talking their talk and walking their walk is the best economic decision you can make overall because you're able to respond in that moment. Otherwise, your future is just a series of moments being concerned about the future. You know, like, when are you ever now? You know, when are you ever right now? And how much money do you need right this second? You know, like enough to keep you afloat so that you're not concerned about other things. However, now you just mentioned other things. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> well, so where are you at today, day to day, mostly? Um, well, about eight years ago, I stopped touring. Always been working at the Fillmore as a house gig and with Ultrasound as a sound company. 
and then artists on the road. Those were my big three. That's how I figured I, I had to tie my year together. It's like, well, any one of them will be working throughout the year. So nightclub, sound company, artist, right? So mm -hmm. since I had faded on the artist side of things, I picked up more on the sound company sides of things and the Warfield installation came online. I had always been involved with the Warfield from previous. Another longer story, there, <laughs> in, 90, in 89, there was an earthquake, the Fillmore shut down, we all moved to the Warfield for five years. I think that's where I got my chops of where in five years, that was like finishing school, stagehand audio guy finishing school. We were doing like 200 to 300 shows a year because at least three nightclub shows went through that place and we all became a great family and, you know, a pretty decent crew, right? And so we took those skills. I then went in 94 to be the Fillmore monitor engineer for a while. And then in 96, started doing the road. Came back to the Warfield in, in 2007 to do the install with Ultrasound and have been managing the scheduling and the in and out of the gear, uh, the audio gear there, and then subsequently the Fox Oakland. So for a while there, I was with the Regency, the Fillmore, the Warfield, the Fox Oakland, and then they added another one, the Social Hall, that I don't know the future of at the moment. But anyway, I was getting overwhelmed, right? And so for the last seven years, I've been trying to juggle that, right? And I recently stripped away a little bit of that responsibility with the Regency Social Hall, and I'm managing the day-to-day -day audio needs of Warfield, Fox, Oakland, and then working at the Fillmore when I can, just for fun. <laughs> so when you work at the, at the Fillmore, you do in front of house? Yeah. All these, I switched to front of house somewhere in the mid-2000s, 2002, 2003. Um, started touring with Lucinda Williams at that time and Babel and some other uh, artists, Brazilian girls, and you know some other things that I got my chops doing front of house after being a front of house systems guy for so long. You learn how to make the canvas white with the <laughs> technical ability, and then you're able to paint the picture with the mixability. Hmm. And so all of that has just been a tandem in information and educational thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm getting off track a little bit here. <laughs> um, so recently I started touring again with an artist named Zhu, Z-H-U, and he's kind of an EDM live guy he's got a guitar and sax player and he plays keyboards and sings and we just got back from australia uh over the holidays so i'm dabbing my foot back into the touring again pool but hopefully from a different perspective how does that feel when you've been out of it for a while to get back into it i'm trying to see myself now as opposed to how i would have respond responded then Things aren't quite as imperative as they were working with some of the artists that I worked with in the past. It's interesting to not be the whipping boy in some of it, you know, if that's a perspective that you can see. Sure. <laughs> it's interesting being able to uh, work with younger audience and artists with a vision of beauty and trying to get my information across without sounding too old or 90s, <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah. Too pontification, you know, too much pontification, you know, like, you know, like this interview. Ah, <laughs> this is all good, man. Um, so how does the studio, where does the studio play uh, its role in your life? Well, out of those three, right, there's the sound company, the nightclub, the artist. Then there's the fourth one, which is my own art, which has been an extension of the bands and trying to, you know, further a recording interest. It's been a slash of 
laboratory hangout place and sometimes recording for profit. However, not really. I tried a little bit in the beginning when we first moved in here, but I was trying too soon. I had met artists that I was touring with that I respected a lot and brought them down to the space, but the space was a little too overwhelming for me and I didn't get the product right away. You know, like I could have used a, 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 a slighter slope, you know, a, tra- a, a, a bit of a transition. <laughs> yeah. I could have done some more intern work, even though I have that in my past. It's a great space. I wish I was doing more with it. So do you plan on doing more studio work in the future? I personally enjoy working one-on-one with an artist in, you know, kind of a creative way, not in a a deadline-oriented way. The economics of that make it a little difficult. I also realize that my relationship with the gear and getting sounds is very live-oriented, very fast, very, you know, which is a good thing sometimes, but it also has an edge to it. The nurturing part is a little difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, live sound people, I think, are badasses at getting things moving quickly because that's what they're used to. And I think that has, you know, I think live sound folks have an edge over strictly studio folks in that department. And I think studio cats have a way of being able to, at least I can recognize it from the ones I've been around, um, to be able to hold that space. And I know I should have wrote Homeboy's name down, but one of your previous (laughs) interviewers or interviewees was speaking about the idea of being able to host and hold space no matter what's happening, but then also have a deadline and not be a jerk about calling time, you know, like, oh no, it's dinner time. Oh no, I got to go feed the dog and everybody's in on it. Calling your boundary before it happens. I'm willing to bet that was David Barbie. Yes. He had some great stuff. It was like, I don't need to say anything. He said it all. <laughs> but yeah, but that whole and it's setting your intention, right? It's like setting your intention for this for the session or whatever. Whenever you can hold your craft, you can say like, "No, I need to be here at an X amount of time or whatever," and we're going to get it done. But if you're not solid on your craft, you feel you need to stay longer or burn yourself out more to try and find something that is elusive. Mm-hmm. However, if it's not elusive, you know, you can you can get it and feed the dog too. You Do know? you feel you're at a point where I mean you've you've proven yourself in the world of live sound monitors or front of house, at least I mean, locally people know you know you and know who you are and your capabilities. Do you have to struggle much for work or does it just come your way these days? Because I've been saying no to some things for a while, like those random calls of people I used to work for, hey, do you want to jump on this tour? Hey, do you want to do this or that? Have leveled off a bit, although that said, I just received and accepted one, you know, but that was after receiving a few over the summer that I said no to. Since I'm doing the scheduling of some of these theaters, it feels like I am have, you know, my thumb on my own schedule and that of others, so I'm trying to create work. You know, it's more trying to get people in the right place at the right time. And the struggles I have with work is uh, having enough time where I'm not thinking about it. <laughs> and it's a good problem to have. Time is the new commodity, right? You yeah, know? especially as we get older, huh? I can't say that I know how to hustle, though, anymore. So in that sense that there is no finish line, that everything is a work in progress, I can't say that if I were to lose it all today, that I would be able to go like, oh yeah, I got something tomorrow. I'm very nervous about that, you know, just because I grew up being very nervous about that, you know? Yeah. And it's a hard thing. It's a hard nervous system uh, vibration to, to calm, 
you know, it's a survival thing that kind of gets drummed into you in the society of like, you know, enough is never enough. And, you know, you need to work more and there's fear behind every move you make, you know, and if you can get rid of that <laughs> and you can understand that, you know, being present is the best commodity that you can have, then, um, you know, all that other stuff, it gets in the way of the art right yeah. <laughs> gets in the way and that's why we're here artists and audience it's kind of funny i work for all these nightclubs and all these sound company or you know whatever but really i work for an ideal like something that doesn't pay me at all right like just the concept of artists and audience and that magic moment that happens in that communication and what mm -hmm. is able to happen through that and especially now more than ever where people are trying to silence that kind of interaction it's sacred right so I want to make my rent too, you know? <laughs> and so it's a hard line of, uh, but I feel that if you're coming from the right place, it's all going to happen. Not like in a, you can accept, like expect it to, but you need to, if you're coming from the right place, you'll recognize it happening. When you do the scheduling, what are we talking? Are we just talking about people? Or are we talking about equipment? Or, or like people and equipment? I have uh, engineers and uh, this, uh, the sound company, the shop and people there that are doing trucking and, you know, just to know are, what, what gear needs to be yeah, where you, know, you get a rider and if we can't fill it or they need another console or they need a bunch of in-ear monitors or, you know, so it's just kind of remote shop project managing from the, for the shop work, you know, mm. and that's ultrasound. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you've, you've been involved with them for Since quite 92. I, when I started working at the Fillmore and introduced to those people and then the Warfield and the Grateful Dead playing there all the time. And I realized they were the Kings and you know, not the Grateful Dead, but as far as regional audio, Ultrasound was the But people. Ultrasound is a company that came out of the Grateful Dead family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dr. Yeah. Don Pearson, may he rest in peace, was an excellent Shaolin master. And he taught me all about the transfer function, which I fell in love with, where, you know, Sim 3 is, we were, they were working on Sim 2 while I was hanging out and he was showing me some stuff while they were writing Smart, uh, the program for room analyzation. And Isn't that somehow tied to Meyer Sound and their? That is Meyer is Sim, uh, Sim Two, Sim Three, and now. that and that's that's just the uh, the uh, like for example, uh, uh, Bob Hodes, mm -hmm. who's a you know very popular acoustician, yeah, uses that to shoot. He's the bomb. Uh, studios, home theaters. Yeah, um, we wanted to get him here, but we didn't get in line quick enough. <laughs> 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 but no, Meyer Sound is uh, in all of those venues I mentioned, and they've helped me and others with their educational program. So much so, like Bob McCarthy, his book is you know should be a should be a bible. Um, there's so much happening with Meyer Sound that is beyond what you know what you would think of them on the surface. You know, interesting. Thank you, Nathan for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you for the opportunity. Awesome. There it is, Nathan Harlow here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Very, very enjoyable to speak with Nathan. Very thoughtful individual with a lot of great experiences under his belt. So thanks again, Nathan, for telling us of your stories. And that's it. So uh, we got to say thanks to everybody. Of course, we got to say thanks to uh, Mr. Cliff Truesdell, Mr. Chuck Smith, and Mr. Cole Williams. And uh, we want to thank our sponsors, of course, Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. And as usual, must thank you guys. Appreciate you listening. Keep doing so. Tell a friend. And, uh, you know, as usual, take care. 
Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out. 